0: This is Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study.
1: Hello and welcome to Dialogue Sunday Study. Today, November 28th, with Professor Amy Harris. If you've been with us before, you know that we try to track the Come Follow Me curriculum, at least in terms of where we are in the Doctrine and Covenants, although every one of these uh, Dialogue Sunday Study takes its own direction. Uh, So for that purpose, just to keep track of where we are, uh, today, we're looking at sections 135 through 138. Uh, not that we'll talk about, I mean, we will, we will, we will go where we go, but um, that is the Come, Follow Me material for the last full week of November ending today and the first week of December ending next Sunday. So we're in sync with the, with, with the Come, Follow Me curriculum. Um, I'm Chris Kimball. I'm conducting today on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board. Other board members, Michael Austin and Rebecca Deschweinitz are part of our group today. Michael Austin has already faded into the background running the tech. Um, We are using our webinar format on Zoom as always, running a live stream on Facebook. And this program is recorded um, and will be available later today or tomorrow on uh, our various uh, systems and programs that provide recordings. Uh, for viewers on Zoom, there is a chat function, and we will try to follow that tra- chat function. We will also be trying to follow comments on Facebook when, when there is an opportunity for questions or discussion. Uh, our advertising year, in the first issue of the journal, founder Eugene England wrote, My faith encourages my curiosity and awe. It thrusts me out into relationship with all creation and encourages me to enter into dialogue. To fulfill Jane's vision in the 21st century, we have now made the journal all 54 years of archived issues and all of our new digital offerings, including this series, our podcasts, and other features, entirely free online. This has meant moving away from a subscription model, and uh, we are now in the process of building a sustaining dialogue fund to carry the journal and associated offerings into the future. And we ask your help in creating that fund. You can find more about sustaining dialogue at givetodialogue.com. Um, we also have an email address dedicated to the campaign that addresses sustaining dialogue at dialoguejournal.com. Now to our lesson today. Um, for our lesson, I'm pleased to introduce Professor Amy Harris, an Associate Professor of History at BYU and an accredited genealogist. Uh, A native of Ogden, Utah, she was lucky enough to be raised by spectacularly good parents and particularly stellar siblings. Her research focuses on family, women, and gender in 18th century Britain, but she has also written on family and genealogy in the LDS context. Since buying a home gardening has become her principal hobby, all other hobbies and abilities, piano, Spanish, ukulele, have completely rusted. But on the positive side, all the gardening vineyard metaphors in scripture are more meaningful, especially the ones where the gardener is completely flummoxed by what the gardener is doing. <laughs> um, I'm going to introduce the people giving prayers and the music all together. Uh, but I, as, a, as an overall note, as with every speaker and every participant, um, we invite people for their personal insights, for their personal voice. Um, Professor Harris, um, so I'll say Amy Harris, today is not speaking for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, nor for BYU, um, nor for the Dialogue Foundation, and none of us are in any of these respect. Um, because we have four members of the BYU faculty today, I think I'll emphasize that nobody is speaking for BYU, uh, as, as one uh, emphasis. Uh, I'm, and in case I forget to close properly, I'm going to introduce everything we're doing today. We're, we're going to open with the LDS Mongolia Choir singing High on the Mountaintop, um, a particularly stirring version. Um, and, and the closing music will be Venny Venni uh, Okamokam Emanuel, performed by Mannheim Steamroller. Our prayers today will be offered by Julie Allen and Megan Sanborn-Jones. Um, Julie Allen, who's with us, is a lifelong reader and inveterate traveler, Sunday school teacher for 15-year-olds, a mother of four kids, two of whom are LGBTQ+, and a professor of comparative literature and Scandinavian studies at BYU. Her research focuses on cultural identity construction and transmission through literature, film, religion, and migration. She's the author of Danish but not Lutheran, The Impact of Mormonism on Danish Cultural Identity, 1850 to 1920, and has a book on European silent film in Australia and New Zealand, forthcoming from the University of Exeter Press in March. Megan Sanborn-Jones is the Chair of the Theater and Media Arts Department at Brigham Young University. Megan is award-winning author of essays and books on Mormon performance. Her most recent book is Contemporary Mormon Pageantry, Seeking After Our Dead. She's a returned missionary from Canada, Montreal, and has served in a variety of callings in the church. Her favorite calling is always the one she currently has, which is right now serving in the young women's program. She and her husband, Glenn Jones, are the happy parents of Cohen, 15, and Eden, 12. Um, So music, uh, the Mongolian, LDS Mongolian Choir, singing High on a Mountaintop.
0: Our dear heavenly parents, we are so grateful for this day, so grateful for the chance to gather together to study the scriptures, study thy word, and to understand better thy calling for us and the ways in which we can become more like thee and make this world a better, safer place for all thy children. We're so grateful for the courage and the beauty of the members of the choir we just heard, so grateful for the courage and beauty of the Prophet Joseph Smith and his attempts to restore to the earth thy gospel. We're grateful for the chance we have to be part of that struggle today, and we are grateful for the chance to continually improve and struggle to make our souls stronger and brighter. We ask you, to please bless us today with Thy Spirit to help us to feel Thy love and understand what Thou wouldst have us do for our fellow men and women throughout the world. And we thank Thee for this opportunity and for the generosity of Spirit that Amy Harris brings to this lesson. And we pray that we will be able to support her and have a uplifting experience together today. And we ask these blessings in the name of thy son, Jesus Christ. Amen.
2: All right. So if you were hoping to hear about the martyrdom or the trek west, I have nothing to offer you today. So I'm really thinking more about section 137 and 138, um, a little bit from 124 and 128 about um, redeeming the dead. Um, and so that's why I chose a high on the mountain top because it ends with the line that in Zion we will save ourselves with all of our debt um, And I kept looking on YouTube for something that wasn't just the Mormon tabernacle choir during conference singing it and when I found the Mongolian choir, I was ecstatic. I'm like this is fantastic it's um and just the rendition was really really well done too, but um I don't understand. Um, <clears throat> Mongolian, but I got the concept. And so I, I, I want to come back in a very tangential way to, um, to that later on. So I want to start with a question that you can all put in the chat and stuff and we can give time to the curators of that to pull out some themes or address some of the questions. And I have a little bit to talk about while you're typing in, in that. And so my question is to start with a trigger word And the trigger word is family history or genealogy. Um, And when you hear family history discussed at church or in your own mind and experience, what are the reasons given for not engaging in it or disliking it or being ambivalent about it? So that's my question. Um, While you're responding to that, I'll give you a couple of examples of what I'm thinking about. Uh, Family history is my thing. And when a speaker gets up in church and says the topic's going to be family history, my first instinct is to run for the exits. Um, and because I'm afraid it will be um, some finger-wagging, guilt-laden, laden, why don't we have as high uh, temple attendance numbers or temple submission numbers as the stake down the road or stake they read about in a church publication. Or I'm afraid the speaker will talk about their own ancestors, always Mormon blue bloods, it seems like, for 20 minutes and then sit down without mentioning any larger application. And then people who know I teach family history at BYU look accusingly at me like it's my fault that this talk has been given on this topic. So um, uh, other responses are like those I read regularly on blogger knackle posts and comment threads. Just this past week, I found this fairly common, th- uh, common comment on wheat and tares. So I'm just quoting this commenter saying, we like to label temple work as serving the Lord or serving our ancestors, but it seems like such a waste of time and money to me of little faith. We have so many needs all around us, yet we enter these opulent buildings to serve ancestors, and we'll never catch up until the millennium anyway. I I think I run across that quite regularly um, on comment threads, um, or people feel overwhelmed or if they're generational members of the church, that there's nothing left for them to do, so on and so forth. Um, To give you just a little further background and let you know what I'm hoping for from today's experience for myself, um, a little bit of background for myself and a little bit about what I'm hoping comes from the content and the discussion is I don't remember a time when I did not want to know about my family's history. I'm the bonus child at the end of nine kids. So family history was partially always about learning about my siblings' lives before I was born. Three of my four grandparents had died before I was born, and the fourth was completely non-communicative and immobile um, when I knew her. So family history was also trying to learn kind of the backstory of my family. Um, And I started filling out pedigree charts, sitting by my dad asking for family stories when I was six or seven. Uh, So that's just been part of who I was all along. And there was an aspect of also wanting to preserve things for the future generation. I remember wanting desperately to have material artifacts of my parents' childhood. My parents were born in the 20s, so their childhoods were in the Depression, and I wanted to somehow understand that. And so because I didn't have that. I decided to preserve my own and I made a paper, a train out of construction paper in elementary school, I think kindergarten, and I came home and I preciously put it in my bottom dresser door because I was going to save it to show my children that I was once a child. So I started keeping journals and scrapbooks, varying degrees of consistency and thoroughness in third grade, I think about then. So the spirit of Elijah may not be listed in scriptures as a spiritual gift, but I'm completely comfortable claiming it as one and one I was given. I did not work for it. I did not earn it. Um, it really was gifted to me. So I get that I'm kind of a weirdo about family history, and that's fine. I've, I've accepted that. I've taken on as part of my identity. Um, and it has meaningful roots, not just in my spiritual practice, but in my daily life. And so it's a little heartbreaking to see how little meaning it has for so many members of the church and how unenjoyable the topic has become to so many saints, at least in my experience in the kind of U.S., Canada, U.K. sphere of the church. So I'd like to know what some of the the responses are to this concept uh, or
3: to why family history has such a bad rap. So we've got some of the kind of uh, you know usual comments. It's boring. It seems too complicated. It's already done. Uh, and then others like it's all in the dash. What really happened to the journey of my ancestors between birth and death? Between those markers mm-hmm. that we actually are recording. Some uh,
1: and. Another comment that some people want to avoid uncovering dark chapters in their family's past, um, yeah. Which I, I I like with the with the dash question. If you're only talking birth and death, um, or or proxy ordinances, you can skip all of that. But if you actually get to the lives, you you get the dark chapters as well. Yeah.
3: Um, also, some comments about. Um, You know, if it's connected in Mormon theology to temple work on earth and, uh, and when the orientation and focus is there, not everybody has a strong testimony of that, um, of the necessity of that, of that work. And so then how do you build, um, how do you build interest if you don't have that?
1: Um... I'm not sure that I'm not extracting and making this up, but I think there is related to the temple work a sense of um, lack of urgency. that is if it's if it's all about temple work, why do I have to I mean it takes time, it's work, it's um, and and why why now? why Yeah,
3: and and there's some observations as well that we tend to have fewer stories about women in our family history. And so uh, and so that becomes less interesting to some of us. <laughs> or, or maybe more interesting to some of us because we're trying to uncover those and, and figure out what came what came before, who came before there's a comment
4: here? here that I like about be, having one person that needs to be the repository of the uh, material. And it does seem that frequently in families, I know in my family, that you've got the one crazy aunt who's done it all. And then it makes you <laughs> feel like you can't contribute. Um, and so the, the commenter here says that that person should also encourage others to be a part of it. And one of the things that I struggle with is how to work within all the work that's already been done. My parents are, um, passionate family historians. And so I listen to the stories, but I don't have work necessarily that I feel I can do. Right. And so that's one of the things that I struggle with is that I enjoy. So I guess I'm grateful for those that are those, the people that have led out. And I also feel a little bereft that it left me nothing to do that I can see. Um, and maybe that's something I need to work on.
0: Well, I have to say the way I've coped with that, you know, having like family back to 1830s in the church, and so much work already done is to borrow other people's family histories. Like I, I really have enjoyed finding other people's stories. And you know, I i teach Danish and I've done all this work on Danish Scandinavian uh, Danish Mormon women, none of whom are in my family, because my Danish Mormon ancestress died at 39 after her husband brought back a wagon box full of orphans from Mountain Meadows. Um that's not why she died, but she died shortly after that. Um, and so it's just I think starting to understand what. That, but benefit family history has for, for us now. Somebody said they want to do work for the living, but I think it does work for the living. Like for me, reading the letters of 19th century Danish Mormon women and learning about their life experiences and the way they dealt with all the challenges of the church back then really helps me deal with the church today and deal with the challenges we face. And so I think making that connection clear, even if it's not your own family. I mean, I had a great, great grandmother who had stomach surgery and vernal on her kitchen table with no anesthesia. That didn't help me when I was going through cancer. Um, I didn't, didn't really want to emulate that. But I think understanding that they're just us, um, you know, even if they're not our own ancestors, they're still just us, can help a lot.
1: The, I mean, my children are on... Un- my side, uh, children of multiple generations of genealogy work, and uh, on their mother's side, uh, she's done tons of work. So they are only really concerned about stories, but the stories are not part of what we get out of these sections of scripture. I'm putting this back to you, Amy. This is, I mean, uh, the stories are not what you're getting out of sections one thirty-seven, one thirty-eight, and and that. But that's what in at least the generations I know living generations, that's what people care about.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's um, so I do. I I'm grateful for that shift because I want to talk about what the scriptures say in the sections first, and then kind of some of my own spin-off from there is um, what they don't say versus how we talk about it now a little bit. So yeah, um, But if it makes all of you who dread doing it, avoid doing it, feel guilty about doing it, you are participating in a long tradition among our people. Because in 1918, the General Relief Society Board voted to end genealogy lessons. And if it were anybody but Susie Young Gates (laughs) convincing them to do otherwise, I'm sure it would have ended then. And she and Joseph F. Smith were allies in family history, but felt like members of the Twelve and the Board of Relief Society we're all in opposition and could not possibly have cared less. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, that it's been a long tradition to not enjoy the genealogy side of this. So I'm going to table family history genealogy for a minute and come back to that later, um, and to tell you a little bit about what I'm really I'm I've been taking notes and I can go back and look at the chats more specifically later. I'm working. Well, I've gathered notes for a couple of books, and next year I'm going to start serious work on two books, both for the Maxwell Institute, one in their Living Faith series, um, and one in their Brief Theological Introductions to the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, And it's that latter one that the subtitle is Redeeming the Dead. And that, I think, is more more than family history. I want to talk about that first. Sections 137, 138, several other passages in 124, 128 are about redeeming the dead. There is no reference to family history. There's no reference to genealogy. There's no reference to seeking our dead. It's about redeem the dead. And I'm convinced that discussing the scope of redemption and the atonement that makes it possible found in the doctrine and covenants is a powerful way to frame the way we now talk about temple work, family history work and genealogy work. And would, and is hopefully a way people can talk about those theological or doctrinal principles without feeling like they have to engage in in it exactly the same way everybody else does. So if the temple's hard to attend, that there's some other aspect of that, or if you're a generational church member and the easy stuff's been done a million times, yeah, there's ways to engage in that, that is story, but is story about redemption, not just story about um, our particular ancestors. Uh, Genealogy and family history are not part of the church until the 1890s, until after Wilford Woodruff's revelation that ended adoption um ceilings and began the idea of seeking after one's own ancestors i mean it it kind of in the 1870s i guess you could see it beginning but it's really after the 1890s that 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 becomes part of the church program so that's two three generations of church members who think about temple the temple um, more framed in notions of redemption than in a task to be performed um so but like I said, Sue's experience is any example. Church members have been complaining since the 1890s. So about doing it. But um, I like the framing of thinking about the timing of Section 137 and 138. Um, 137 is from January 1836 when they're finishing up the Kirtland Temple and they're expecting. There's all these revelations telling them to expect glorious manifestations, and we know, you know how the dedication of that uh, of the temple how The outpouring of spiritual experiences and um, the visitation to Oliver and Joseph within the temple of various previous prophets and Christ himself. Um, So in leading up to that, Joseph has this revelatory experience of seeing the heavens. And he sees his father and his mother there, who were both living at the time, and Alvin and all the children who died innocently. Um, The children who died before accountability would be saved was already established in Moroni 8, Um, but the section 137 presence of Alvin in that is what really stands out as the, I don't know, revelatory innovation Um, to think about how are adults who are not baptized or who never had the chance for baptism accounted for in all the scriptural commands that everyone needs baptism and repentance um, the framing for section 138, I'm sure most of you, all of you know, that you know coming on the heels of World War I and the beginning of the flu epidemic and Joseph F. Smith's personal griefs of many family losses that year, and he's old and frail himself <clears throat> and bereaved, um, thinking about atoning sacrifice and redemption of the world, which I think we have maybe a sense of in our quieter moments, living through our own pandemic experience and a world full of dissension and war and suffering. Um, And he's thinking about the great and wonderful love, redemption of the world, the the great and wonderful love of God that redemption of the world represents. So he sees the spirit world um, and he sees people talking about the faithful, um, talking about resurrection as their redemption. And that the fullness of this joy could only come from a unified spirit and body, um, and that's taught elsewhere in the Doctrine and Covenants. But I was struck by the line that um, Christ preached liberty to the captives who had been faithful. So even the faithful saw themselves as needing saving, as, as needing redemption. And that they then carry the light of the gospel to those that are in darkness, even to all the spirits of, the, of humanity. That's verse 30. To proclaim liberty to the captives who were bound, even to those who would repent of their sins. Um, so, verse thirty-five talks about the redemption brought by sacrifice of the Son of God. So, the resurrection for those who are faithful and had repented and participated in ordinances still need the resurrection brought by Christ, and those who had died in darkness or sin need both the the redeeming power of forgiveness and resurrection. So men and women who were converted to Christ already taught and talked with those who were not and um, who were not converted or who were suffering um, in one form or another. And if I can speculate, I assume that some of the folks um, teaching and the people they were teaching on the other areas of the spirit world were people that may have known each other before mortality but whose earthly experiences were so different that it put them in different places in the spirit world. So I I just, I think of the connections of those people instead of, sometimes we talk about it like, I don't know, missionaries in the sense of suit or dresses, walking and knocking on doors in spirit prison to find those wicked sinners. Um, But I think it's more likely that it's people you knew um, either on earth or before. who you're going to talk to and to try to explain what the atonement, the freedom and the redemption brought by the atonement. Verse 58 says the dead are redeemed by repentance. And this is my scriptural (laughs) rebuttal (laughs) for one of my pet peeves. (laughs) And that is sometimes when we talk about redeeming the dead, or we talk about, okay, we don't talk about redeeming the dead this way. When we talk about going to the temple, we say, if we don't do the temple work for these people, they suffer in spirit prison. And that, that just, the gears grind in my head on that because um, that's purgatory um, that people have to suffer at a certain length until they either suffer or an ordinance a mass for the dead or something is dead is done for them. And the aspect that we're connected to them and we can do something to help them is lovely. The idea that God is going to let them suffer because they happen to be born in Mongolia in 3000 BC versus someone who is born like I am, you know, Six generations down, born in the covenant, baptized at eight. That seems like a cruel, (laughs) a cruel God that would say, "Oh, eternal salvation is also based on the variegies of or the discrepancies of mortal experience." Um, So I like think the emphasis of verse fifty-eight: the dead are redeemed by repentance; they are not redeemed by us doing proxy work for them. They repent, and the atonement is universal and is applicable to them. Um, so I think this in verse 35 are the key points that redemption is brought by the sacrifice of Christ and redemption is also brought by our repentance. Um, the, the recognition of our own need for the atonement and our reliance on the atonement redeems everyone living and dead. The preaching to them in the spirit world and the performing of proxy ordinances on earth are tools or means to that end. The redeeming power drives and inspires those efforts, but those efforts have no saving power on their own. However, I think this doctrine and covenants is teaching us there is a human component to redeeming the dead that is essential. That it is, and I, I won't pretend to understand this: why God can't just save us all if we repent? Right? Why there's this human, physical ordinance done during mortality for those of us who get baptized? but also a physical ordinance by those who are mortal for the dead. I won't pretend to understand the um, cosmological reasons for that. Other than I think God's trying to teach us, heavenly parents want us to think about each other as, as saving as a communal experience. So verse 48 connects Malachi's prophecy and Elijah which of course is not clear from Malachi itself that it should be connected to temples. But verse 48 makes that connection explicit. Malachi's prophecy and Elijah is connected to temples for the redemption of the dead and sealing of children to parents. So the atonement of Christ, his redeeming power saves us individually. But Malachi's prophecy, which by the way is cited or repeated in every standard work, and is the only scripture I know of that, quoted verbatim like that, underscores, underscores that human connections are also necessary for full redemption, that the combination of individual salvation and connected or linked humanity is the culminating purpose for the earth. Um, I was reading Francine Binion's chapter in uh, Women at the Pulpit, this 1986 Women's Conference address about suffering that is the best thing I've ever read from an LDS author about human suffering. Um, but she said this line about theology. She said, it's not enough that theology be either rational or faith-promoting. It must be both. It's not enough that satisfying theology be mastered by a few experts. It must be comfortably carried by ordinary people. It's not enough that theology helped me understand God. It must also help me to understand myself and my world. And this is a couple of the comments and Julie's comment um, sort of touch on this, that redeeming the dead is both has both divine purposes and is embedded in human reality at the same time, which to me is kind of beautiful that that Joseph, the sort of point of the restoration is to bring together a lot of these, what feels disparate pieces. And so to bring those two pieces together is meaningful to me. Um, Also, Joseph uses this really soaring language, right? Um, That baptism for the dead or redemption for the dead, they're conflated terms a lot of times in the Doctrine and Covenants is the way to unify all dispensations, all powers, all glories ever revealed. He reveled in the joy and gladness found in this doctrine. What's the line? What do we hear in the gospel which we have received? A voice of gladness, a voice of mercy, a voice of gladness for the living and the dead. Malachi prophesied that the earth would be cursed or wasted if there was no heart turning between generations. That the hearts of the children must turn to their mothers and fathers, and the hearts of the fathers and mothers must turn to the children. And then Joseph asserted that there had to be a welding link to fulfill this prophecy, and the baptism for the dead is that link. Sealing comes along later, <laughs> uh, so this is in the early, early thoughts about um, baptism. So, at its for me, at its core, our part of redeeming the dead must be relational, not instrumental. The dead are not objects we use to demonstrate our righteousness. Um early saints understood this better than we did. I think we do because as soon as Joseph starts preaching about, I mean, so if you think about the revelation in 137 is 1836, he sees Alvin, he sees Alvin saved, but it's not till 1840 that he starts preaching about proxy work for the dead. So it sort of expands on that earlier revelation to think, well, what, how does that practically happen? And again, I think, you know, maybe this is heresy, but I think God can save a repentant soul, without us, but has set up a system that requires us um, for each other. Um, so Joseph's preaching in August, preaches a funeral sermon in August of um, 1840 about um, proxy baptism for the dead. And Jane Harper Naman is the first recorded reference we have to someone baptized for a deceased relative. And she goes down September 12th, so not even a month later. She gathers up a couple of friends. So a man to perform the baptism and a woman to witness it. Uh, The woman rode her horse out into the river to make sure she could hear the words. Um, And Jane is baptized on behalf of her son who had died that summer. Her husband also died, but he had already been baptized. I just, I love the image of the idea of Jane hears this. It's like, I, this is what I can do for my son who's dead. And these three people huddled in the river to perform an ordinance for a deceased person. echoes quite lovely to me, standing at the veil in the temple and there's a temple worker on one side of the veil and a temple worker on the other side of the veil. And I stand there and in my my hands is a little piece of paper with a person's name with the three of us huddled over thinking about um, that person for those few minutes, right? And what we were trying to accomplish Um, and having that person being the object Sorry, that's not the right word. That, that person receiving that kind of specialized, personalized attention from three other people as part of their journey. Um, uh, so I like that you know there's a soaring rhetoric and then the lived reality of those three people on a fall day standing in the river doing that ordinance. So behind the, the language to me is a fundamental principle. The human component in redeeming the dead is about meaningful, reciprocal relationships. Welding implies that those relationships take work. Metal has to be softened, reshaped and bent to create links. And we too need to be softened, refined and reshaped by redeeming the dead. In that remaking, we also come to understand our interconnectedness. Each person chooses to join the covenant of baptism, but by doing so, as the Book of Mormon teaches, we also choose to be in covenant relationship with each other. We cannot treat the dead like objects we manipulate. Like I said, we must see them as mortal, flawed people and as children of shared parents and capable of being redeemed. And this is the, the turning point for me. And there's been a couple of comments about this. I think that in and of itself is a half the journey. But I think when we really engage in that, when we really see redeeming the dead as a, as a relationship and not a task, and the dead is real people. It should, I think it can, I think the spirit does this for us, helps us figure out. That means every other living person we interact with is the same quality. They're mortal, they're flawed, they're in need of redemption and connection. They too are children capable of being remade in Christ's image. So for all the people who say, you know, family history detracts from us caring for the poor, the needy, the disadvantaged, the oppressed, the marginalized. I I mean, I kind of get it because time is a a finite resource. And the money that's spent on temples and family search is a finite resource. I I, I get that perspective. But at the same time, I'm thinking, okay, but it's supposed to teach us how to value living people too. It's supposed to help us see how the living are our brothers and sisters and help us think of ways that it kind of refines maybe our, our ability to see other people that way so that we do engage more in ways of relieving the suffering of the living. And some of you telling you know, stories about your own ancestors and their suffering and <laughs> their difficulties. Um, we can't do anything about their suffering, but it perhaps shapes some of our own or frames some of our own thinking but I would hope it could make us more compassionate for the suffering of those we encounter in our, in our daily life. Um, so this connects me. I don't know why I'd never heard recognize this before, but this last time reading through the Doctrine and Covenants this year, in section 124, the same language that describes the Nauvoo temple is used to describe the Nauvoo house. Um, that there's a house for lodging and recreation and socializing that's described in the same sacred and important language as the temple. Both are referred to as the Lord's house. Uh, That kind of startled me this time through the Doctrine and Covenants, and it made me think of section 130. uh, 130 verse 2 describes heaven as a place where we will enjoy the same sociality we enjoy here, only coupled with eternal glory. So tying those two concepts together, I don't think is accidental. That how we socialize with each other is a, is a part of a salvific process um, It's not just It's not just um, a sort of ritual done at the temple to make us feel good about our own spirituality. It has, It has a, a broader, uh, deeper aspect. To, vi- to provide a place for the weary, to come and rest at the Nabu house and a place of salvific ordinances for the dead are not disparate ideas. Fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy, Christ came to preach to the poor, to heal the the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance, to set at liberty liberty them that are bruised. I particularly like the the word to them that are bruised from Luke. If you've done family history long enough, you will undoubtedly encounter the poor, the dispossessed, the captive, the brokenhearted, the oppressed, and the bruised among your own ancestors. Redemption for the dead isn't limited to baptism for those who've never been baptized. It's also about recognizing the scope of Christ's atonement that reaches all sorrows, provides healing and deliverance for all wounds, past and present. Engaging in this work makes us both witnesses and participants in God's eternal work. The theology accounts for everyone who has ever lived. And here's this fantastic quote from Joseph Smith from December of 1840. Love is one of the chief characteristics of deity and out and out to be ought to be manifested by those who aspire to be the sons of God a man filled with love of God is not content with blessing his family alone but ranges through the whole world anxious to bless the whole human race so I love the ideas about that scale and uh, <laughs> I'm going to do something that when I tell this kind of stuff to people, they tell me never use that in a church setting ever again. But it's helpful to me. So you can ignore this section if it's not helpful to you. But I want to talk about the scale of what redeeming the dead means. And uh, it's a bit daunting. Demographers estimate there's one hundred and seven billion people who have lived on the earth. Uh, And by people, they usually mean homo sapiens. Um, I, I don't even want to guess how many Australopithecus on down uh, are connected, but um, so 107 billion people have lived on earth. Temple work, I don't know if some of you may not know this, I don't know, that you cannot do temple work for anybody born before 1500 without approval and a lot of documentation to prove they're a real person, a real person hasn't already had work done, and a real person that you have some claim on. So we've FamilySearch figures that since 1500, we have records of about 8 billion people. In 2020, there were 1.3 billion people on FamilySearch's family tree, a crowdsourced family tree, global family tree, a figure that hides pantheons of ancient gods, fictional characters and duplicates that have not been cleaned out yet. Um, and it doesn't represent that every one of those 1.3 billion have had temple work done. So decrease that if you're thinking about temp work. And I would say best case scenario, it means that maybe, maybe five to 10% of proxy work for the dead for whom there are records has been completed. Um, even if we did the work for, for every unique individual in the written or oral records that survive, assuming we could identify each of those as unique individual, which we cannot, the records have many people listed solely as things like Mrs. Smith, Um, the best we could hope for is maybe 0.075% proxy work for all who have lived, with that percentage constantly decreasing as more people die each year than temple ordinances are performed each year. So as, as I said, people don't like me to bring that up, but I find it a useful reminder. Because to me, it says when we engage in family history work or genealogy research or temple work, We're showing our willingness to work in the vineyard alongside the Lord, but we also should recognize the scale of our contribution versus the scale required to accomplish our heavenly parents' purposes. It should keep us humble and grateful. I also find it useful in thinking about just what we are doing with all the time, money, and resources spent on this endeavor, because it really isn't about checklisting off and finishing all that work. Setting aside whether the work should, should require opulent buildings, like the wheaton and Tears commenter said, that's a topic, a separate topic. I see all of this labor as an offering. In the words of section 128, an offering worthy of all acceptation. That we make an offering out of gratitude for our own redemption and as a symbolic gesture that we really, really believe in the universal scope and application of Christ's atonement and our heavenly Father, our heavenly parents, all-encompassing love, that they really are no respecters of persons, that they really mean it when the scriptures talk about all and every. Um, And I'm going to end there, (laughs) that um, I would like to hear other people's comments on that, um, if that's a useful framing. And I will just sort of make a little... um, plug for we don't have to do it the way we've always done it or the way your crazy great aunt does it or to quote a friend of mine that I've used in another setting the way the guy in the third ward does it um that the Mongolian choir singing a restoration American hymn in Mongolian um it says that we can we can make it our own and participate in the work of redemption in our own human scale but in a way that makes sense in our in our neighborhood and in our families. Um, and I, I I think there is power there to help us be better neighbors, to be better Christians with the living through engaging and redeeming the dead. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
1: Amen. Um, do we have, we have a few minutes that we can discuss. I, the, uh, basic idea of which I think I typed in the chat here, um, that this is a relational, not instrumental project. That could be a title of this whole. I, uh, I thought that was wonderful, and it, uh, and a number of people have picked up and and, and mentioned that. It's uh, Do you see that as an answer to the scale issue? that is making sense of what we're doing uh, uh, could never be um, scaled to a, to us saving everyone. Yeah. And if that, if, even if that weren't a heretical comment to make in the first place.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's the starfish thing, right? I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's, it is. I think we are not capable of the work required. And so just let that go and say, but we're capable of relationships because I feel this way about the news. I'm not capable of absorbing the suffering in Syria and the Uyghurs and, you know, my own neighborhood sometimes, right? I'm not capable of that, but I can be in relationship with the people near me and I can, I can ameliorate that suffering as best I can, or at least be compassionate for that suffering. So yeah, to me it is. It's helpful to think about the scale is beyond human comprehension. Oh wait, that's something It's probably trying to tell me something that's beyond human under capacity. And so, but I can do relationships, right? Love God, love others. That's apparently, you know, the great commandments tell us relationships are the building block. So I believe that. I hope that. So
1: yeah, well, and I, love, I think I love th- the way it puts back. I'm sorry, Rebecca, but I'll finish the sentence. I love the way it puts back the universality of salvation of, of, of Christ's work um, and puts that in a proper perspective, what I think is a proper perspective. And with that sentence, Rebecca, go ahead. <laughs> yeah.
3: I just, um, you know, I'm struck thinking again about your observation and and um, Pete and I, when we were teaching our uh, primary class also noticed this, the kind of not the way that the Nauvoo house is talked about in the same way as the temple. And and I think that kind of recognition that these two go together—that we're doing—I mean, there's like what happens in the temple, but then there's the concrete. You know, we're in relationship with these people in this boarding house, okay. <laughs> and we're and we're taking care of each other, right? And we're uh, concerned with uh, with the redemption and with the well-being of those who are right around us. Uh, I also, so um, I'll just echo. Clay Cook who says, wow, <laughs> thanks. Um, I, I also thought about, um, your lesson in relationship to, um, ethers kind of ether. Um, and we see this vision of, uh, all of humankind. There's this vision that of all of humankind and, uh, and then, um, you know, he's thinking about kind of coming to a new Jerusalem, right? And and part of this vision is, you know, thinking about this 107 billion people. Um, and and I think that family history work and this this um, you know theology and practice helps us to to have a piece of that vision um, that is necessary to building Zion, to building a new Jerusalem that kind of having a sense of that scope and trying to connect in some kind of way, um, to our, um, to our relationship to all of human history, um, helps us then to, to, to build Zion. Anyway, that's where, where I'm going. If that makes any sense as I think about this. So
2: can you just say that last sentence again about that it's necessary to have that sense of all the scope is necessary.
3: Well, it just, it just, I think helps us to, um, to, to get over the division. So think about like, you know, he's watching the destruction of his people and they've divided themselves all up. And then, you know, he's had this vision of all of human history, um, and, and it's like, he gets it because of that. He's, he's able to see through the division um, that's keeping people from b- being able to uh, to be in relationship to each other and instead just to, you know, partition themselves off. Mm. Um, so I think there's a really, um, you know, yeah. beautiful truth and the work of redemption here on earth comes um. You know partly as we're imagining our larger connection to 107 billion people <laughs> in all human history. I just want to jump in and say that's
0: that's exactly what I thought so powerful here. I mean this the starfish analogy I always love because every every little bit does count. But the fact that it is so indiscriminate that we don't go back and say like, well, we're only going to do our, you know, Republican ancestors or only our Democrat ancestors or only our English speaking ancestors. It's all the ancestors. And there's, you know, at the risk of being a cliche, there's a great Hans Christian Andersen story about an old oak tree that is being pulled up to the sky, sort of, you know, being transcended. And he wants to bring everything with him, all the fruit flies and all the daylilies and, and everything that surrounds him. And it is that it's in that diversity, right? It's in the the everybody part of it that is so great—it's in the Mongolian choir and the Danish weirdos like me, and, and all, all, and our neighbors here in Utah. Right? It's all those things together that's so so powerful about it, and and how it is so present. I mean, I think Andy said it's about the dead and spirit among us now, right? Redeeming those ones who are who have lost hope and lost light, and and sometimes that's us. No, yeah.
2: I yeah. saw that line about the dead and spirit, and and I think also about the way we, we build all manner of ites in our world. And that this can help you under, say, you know, if you're, you know, I'm as white bread as it comes. And if I, if I do family history right though, stories about slavery hurt, right? Even though they didn't hurt my ancestors and sweet mercy, my ancestors also weren't enslavers. So I don't have to grapple with that personally, but I have to grapple with it collectively. And I think you, you can't just be like, well, that's not my suffering. Or that doesn't impact me. Once you feel like, wait, we're all in this, we're all in this relationship together, it does impact me. There has, and this is back to Chris's point about that's beyond my capacity to do anything about other than to to, to be often by it, to be compassionate, but it can only be through Christ that that's at all comforting <laughs> at all to encounter that. So yeah, it's the divert. I, I like the idea to bring all the fruit flies in the, the tree, bring all their lived experience too. And that,
4: yeah, so. Well, and one of the things that I particularly appreciated is this idea that the way that we work for the, the dead Um, which does, it is sort of encoded in certain ways. I mean, I think it it starts in the youth program, right? We start very young and they say, you're going to go, you're going to get a name. You don't know the person, you won't know who they are, but you need to like, sort of, I mean, I remember being coached, sort of try to connect to this person or try to open your mind to appreciate this person, Um, And I remember uh, always being tickled. Even even now, I'm always tickled when I get a name that's like almost unpronounceable. And I think, who are you? (laughs) Who who are you? I don't know you, but I'm doing this thing for you. And I have never before thought, Amy, about the connection between that and how I treat other people I don't know, right? Mm -hmm. This idea that when I encounter other people I don't know in my daily life, living people, I don't have that same necessarily sense of wonder and um, pleasure. And like, I don't know you. This seems odd, <laughs> but I'm going to do a thing for you. Instead, I like I don't know whether it's a visual thing because I can see the person, but there there brings with it a whole host of resistances that I think if I could treat everyone I meet the same with the same sense of wonder and. Uh, pleasure and openness, the way that I treat the name on the piece of paper, that that is part of this work of redemption. And that certainly is the sort of relationships and would be a much better way for me to encounter people. Um, and So I appreciate that as a, as a framework for using uh, the way that I do work for the dead as a way of doing work with my living.
3: Yeah. yeah, so there's a comment on Facebook that, um, you know, and, and I think we all do this, um, that we think of more than the dates and names um, that we're taking to the temple, but, but we often will try to figure out who this person was, what did they experience, you know, ask questions about them. And that's a really power, um, powerful religious practice um, for how we relate here on earth and, and the the different levels of redemption that are going on. Right. Um, and, and even the, the kind of, you know, I think about the mispronouncing names and we're getting people from different countries and different eras that, that really, you know, reminds us of, of our deep shared humanity um, that is going to, that, that has the possibility of, of uh, sh- shifting how we relate to each other here on earth.
1: Um, I'd, I'd like to sort of read into the record, if you will, this <laughs> comment from Joe Bennion, uh, because I think it uh, ties together a number of themes, and, I, and it tears me up. Um, <laughs> I've done many, this is Joe Bennion, I've done many years worth of proxy ordinances for persons I never knew, just names on a slip. When I took the names of men whom I have known in prison, men who killed others and died without chance to be baptized, everything changed. It is relational. Uh, These men are my chosen brothers. It felt different and changed in real ways. Um, Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think it's transformative versus compulsory.
1: Yeah, I, I, I about... I'd like the idea of, I mean, back to family. I mean, we have talked about names we uh, you know ad- adopt as someone we're paying attention to right now, but the family history and knowing um, who they were and some of their stories is is for me a big part of it. Actually, that is uh, families create patterns. Um, Sometimes they're positive, sometimes they're negative, sometimes they're oppressive. Um, They're patterns of abuse. They're patterns of, uh, you know, generations of church membership and activity. And that can be positive or (laughs) negative depending on who you are and how you take it. But um, they are all part of who we are and the stories make us think about how we go forward with those relationships and the patterns that have been created. I'm I think that's an important part of not just the temple ordinance but um, what what has been made of my family what has been made of me as a result of generations of 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 good and bad of the of the whole of the whole of their stories.
2: That's I think um, good the- I think the scriptures are telling us we need story. So even though the, these sections don't say knowing your ancestors story is important. The fact that we're writing all these things down and the book of Mormon. That's a family story um, tells us that those stories for good and bad. Um, and I actually think knowing the bad can be quite helpful. <laughs> those dark stories can be quite, quite helpful for our own healing and for being able to forgive, learn how to forgive Learn where some of the darkness comes from. What's um, my favorite Richard Rohr quote, pain that is not transformed will be transmitted. And so learning where some of your own suffering comes from and allowing the atonement to transform it instead of transmitting it to the next generation is I think a way, a service to the living and the future living, not just the the current.
1: Well, I I, have, um, it's, it's an hour and I think, thank you. Thank you, Amy. Thank you, everybody. Um, we'd like to close our formal structure. And Megan, let me ask your time. Um, we can we can do music first or we can ask you to pray first. Um, I can, I can wait till after, after the song. After the song? Okay. Yes, of
4: course.
2: I chose an Advent song about redemption. So that's... <laughs>
4: Our dear Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this opportunity that we've had to meet together today to study um, the Doctrine and Covenants and to uh, learn from this community and particularly to learn from Amy Harris. We're grateful for her insights into um, the past and how it can help us with our present lives. We ask for a blessing to be uh, with each of us, that we can both be the instruments in thy hands that Thou would have us be, but also that we will create better relationships with those around us, that we will um, uh, seek out those that we don't know and treat them with care and tenderness. We're grateful this Christmas season for the gift of thy son and ask that Thou help us every day to be more like him. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
0: You've been listening to the Dialogue Gospel Sunday Study. Find more of our podcasts at dialoguejournal.com slash podcasts.
1: Dialogue Podcast Network.